0: Now, my wife and I love to travel. In our 25 years of marriage, we've done a lot of traveling. And one of the things you know about traveling is you have to have some kind of suitcase or some kind of luggage. Now, this this is not mine. My wife actually went and borrowed this for me because I would never carry something this large. We were in Krakow, Poland, coming out of a train station, and we were walking up the steps. And um, we saw these young, this young, this guy and a gal, maybe in their early 20s, carrying these massive Roller suitcases, just lugging them up the stairs. My wife and I looked up at them and thought, man, they are going to want to ditch that stuff quickly. Because when you travel, you don't want to carry a lot of stuff, right? Now, I'm speaking from my perspective, okay? Maybe you need three suitcases. I'm not sure. God bless you. We want to get down to carry-on size. In fact, this is my carry-on. I take it everywhere I go. I can live for um, a week or so out of this. If I've got a trip that's four or more days, I pull that out of the closet. And pack that up with the pack bags. But what I love the most is this bag. This bag, uh, my wife and I each bought one of these uh, before the summer of 2000. This is our sabbatical bag, we call it. And these are all the places I've had privilege of visiting. And yes, I sewed every patch on myself. And, um, and, and, and so we learned to live for 12 weeks out of this bag. Because really, if you can live for four to six days, you can live forever, right? And so we learned how to pack thanks to Rick Steves, public television. Uh, we learned how to do that, and I love that back backpack but the, when we were on our sabbatical in the summer 2000 we started and they weighed about 20 pounds which is not bad for a backpack and it was a good weight distribution but I I love books and, and my wife you know and I would buy things along the way and we'd wander from place to place and pretty soon my backpack would was get heavy and then it would be like 25 pounds and then it was 30 pounds and I'm carrying books of all things and knickknacks and stuff and so every once in a while several times in the summer We'd find a a post office and we would box everything up and send it back to Sarah, who was watching our house that summer and our cat. And uh, we would send those back home and I'd go from 30 plus pounds down to 20. It was like, ah, this is amazing. I like not having that much weight. This bag I bought a number of years ago from the Columbia store, employee store. A friend got me in there, and it's great because it's got a place for my laptop. Uh, I actually live most of my life out of here. When I, I usually travel three or four days. I put everything in here. And I've got a way to set that all up. And my laptop can be in there, my iPad and all that stuff. And actually, a, a couple times when Pastor Kevin and I were doing some church trips where we're going to L.A. or different places, Las Vegas, uh, I just used my briefcase. Not not the old Samsonite hard briefcase, you remember, from the 80s. But a uh, soft one. I'd put everything in there. And I found that the lighter you travel, the better you are. As long as you bring underwear. Okay? You know, you got to bring the essentials, Right? But I think in life, sometimes we carry far too much with us, and we wonder what we do and what we could possibly do with all of this. You know, we've been in the series where we've been talking about reset, and we've been talking about dealing with the brokenness in our lives. We talked about all the mistakes of our past and the struggles and how do we relate to those mistakes and all the things that we've done to others, all the things that other people have done to us. And then we came to terms with the fact that not only do we make mistakes, but according to God, we go deeper than that. We actually sin. We break the relationship with God and others. We violate that. And so we're not just mistakers. We're more than that. We're sinners. And so we've been walking this journey to talk this through. And see, that the problem is, is that as we go along in life, and the older you get, and the more you look back on the past, it's very, very easy and very natural to carry a weight. Of shame, and guilt, and struggle. Uh, as a pastor, I, I can't tell you the, the number of people I meet with, you know, typically week after week, who are carrying such a heavy load, such an intense burden of all the things that they—if they could just relive it over, if they could just do it again—they would have said something different. They would have done something different. They would have made a different decision back then, but they didn't. Or the thing that somebody did to them, they carry the wounds and the scars. And you know this because this is, this is your life too. You, you walk this journey of life. And you know what it's like to look back at your life and realize the woulda, coulda, shoulda days. When you know, if I could just live it over. Well, the question is, what do you do with all of this baggage that you carry, all of this luggage? Is it possible to get rid of it? I mean, maybe the old steamer trunk days, you know, the, the big ocean liners. Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe if you were to think about your past and your life and your struggles, it's here. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's smaller. Every one of us, though, have to learn how to deal with the pain of the past and the struggles and the mistakes and our sins. And we have to learn. We have to understand. We have to figure out how to live in this life not so burdened down by the past. And so what do we do this? Because we all carry it. Well, sometimes we can just ignore the weight. You just pretend it's not there. And as my wife and I were walking around, uh, you know, backpacking and riding the rails through Europe, you know, it was obvious that it was there because you don't carry 25 or 30 pounds on your back and just walk through the Louvre. You know what I mean? First of all, they probably won't let you in anymore with that kind of luggage. You know, you have to trim down, right? You have to. So what do you do? Well, for us, we'd go to a luggage place and train station and we'd rent a locker and we would throw our big bags in there, these bags, and we carry just a day pack with us. Just enough for a meal and just a a few things we wanted to carry with us, right? A camera, such like that. You know, because you can ignore it, but I'm telling you, weight on you will weigh you down to the point of affecting your posture, affecting your attitude. It will wear you down. What do you do? Uh, A number of years ago... I had the privilege to hang out with the Hillsboro PD. Um, I wasn't in trouble this time, amazingly enough. I wasn't in cuffs or I wasn't thrown in the back seat. I got to do that to others. I was in Innovations Academy where I got to be a police officer, Hillsboro PD, for a day. Got to hang out with the chief and I was assigned a patrol officer. And there were several folks from the city that were given this opportunity. And they took us through all the training, you know, and then they gave us all, all the gear. They they put that uh, that vest on. That Kevlar vest on, and all, I had a shirt on top of it. I had the the belt on with all of the things they carry. They said it's about 40 pounds, and it felt like a lot more than that, okay? And so I'm walking around with an extra 40 pounds. I used to weigh an extra 40 pounds. I know what that's like, but when you're not, and then you put it on, it's like pretty tremendous, right? And uh, then you have to do it. And so I had to get into the car. You know what it's like to get into a cop car with 40 pounds on you and stuff that jingles and jangles? They actually had to show me. The officer had to say, here's how you get into a police car. (laughs) And the seat's back, and it's like you got to swing your hips and slide in and get down. And it was was obvious that I was weighed down. So you can't really ignore it. It's a fact. Uh, Sometimes we try to redefine it. We call it something else. We lay blame on somebody else and we try to, you know, coax ourselves in our minds that the weight we're carrying isn't really a weight of guilt or shame. It isn't really what it truly is or what's seen by others. Or we can own the weight. But what do you do when you own it? When you accept it, when you come to terms with it, maybe you've been to a counselor Maybe you've been to a therapist. Maybe you've sat down with some friends. Maybe you've been in an intervention, in the middle of the intervention, you know. And you finally come to terms with owning the weight, owning the baggage, owning the accumulation of all that you've done, all that you've said. And you've got guilt and you've got shame. What do you do with it? How do you own it in such a way that you're changed? Because I know guilt is powerful. I know shame is crippling. And I know the self-talk that we do, and there is an enemy of our soul, the Bible tells us, that whispers to us all the time, we're nothing, we're worthless. You'll never amount to it. You'll never get rid of this. This is who you are. It defines you. Just pretend. But when you own it, when you come to terms with it and accept it for what it is, what do you do then? Perhaps we really do want to change. Is there a way just to drop the weight and leave it? Is there a way to disconnect from it? We're in this reset series where we're asking these kind of questions. And the most important question we're asking is, who is Jesus and what does he say about life? And so I want to ask the question, what would Jesus say about this issue? Because somewhere along the way, we started a journey of faith. Uh, maybe we were young. Maybe we were a child. Maybe it's because our parents, or our grandparents, you know, got us to church. Or maybe because we were a youth and we went in because of a youth pastor. Or maybe, you know, somewhere along the line, you know, we started having questions and we sat down with the pastor and we started talking about it. Somewhere along the line, we began a journey of faith. And along that journey of faith, great things happened. But then tragedy happens. And then pain happens. And then suffering happens. And it could be the death of a loved one. We had a grief share conference here yesterday where our fireside room was filled with folks from around the Pacific Northwest that minister in churches to walk through the grieving process with folks because it's everywhere, my friends, when we experience it. We walk through that and then we begin to ask some deeper questions like where is God in all this? Why would God allow this to happen? Why didn't God stop that situation? Or we just kind of have other questions and we wonder about this versus that. We had our conversations in coffee uh, a couple Mondays ago, and, uh, or I think it was this last Monday, and we talked and some of the questions were, how does this verse reconcile with this verse? What if this is this? And if they believe that, why didn't it happen? And, and if that's wrong, do we just throw out the whole Bible? Those are deep questions. And somewhere along the way, sometimes we just pursue life and we end up putting God on the back shelf. And then we come back, and this is, a, this is kind of a typical story I hear over and over again. I, I, I wrote it down because it's the culmination of a lot of stories. Let me read it to you. You know, Pastor James, I went to church as a child. I became a teenager or young adult, and I didn't just drift away from God. I ran hard from him. I made choices that required me either to separate my actions from my faith or just decide to bury my faith so I could learn to enjoy life the way I've always wanted it to be. Now, here I am as an adult, or I'm a parent of a young child or children, and I think it's time to come back to church. I think it's time to check out if the God thing is real or not, because now more is at stake. That is the culmination of so many stories, friends. And that might be you. You could be online. You're thinking the same exact thing. Or you might be here in the room walking through that. So what do we do with the memories? What do we do with the guilt? What do we do with the shame of our actions when we stepped away from God? Jesus tells this amazing story. This amazing story about a man who had two sons. And the younger son decided that it was time to experience all that life could afford him. Because he could afford a lot. Because he got his half of the inheritance and he went off and it says he partied and he hung out with everybody and he enjoyed the prostitutes and the casino. He moved to Las Vegas and started going to Raider games is kind of what it was. You know what I mean? Sorry, I'm a fan, but not of sin, but of the Raiders. And, And sometimes it's hard to differentiate those two, by the way. But and he enjoyed all of life until it ran out. Well, what ran out? Well, everything ran out. His money ran out. Because his money ran out, the good times ran out. All the pleasure ran out. All the people ran out. All his friends ran out. Everything ran out. All his options ran out. And they ran out in this only left option, the only thing on the table, the only way he could even make a living was to go to hang out with the pigs. And for a Jewish boy to hang out with the pigs, that was just the worst of the worst. And he fed them. And he looked at that food and thought, man, I'm so hungry. I could eat that slop, and that would be good. And then he had a moment. It's like a picture popped in his head. Wait a minute. Even the guys that work for my dad do better than this. Even my dad's hired hands eat better than this. They're treated better than this. They live in a place. They live in a bunk. I, I'm going to just go back and appeal to my dad that I could be a hired hand. I mean, I'll, I'll never make it as a son. I, I gave that up. I ran away. I shamed the family. In the guilt of my life, there's no way I could ever go back to the main house. But I can live in like a bunkhouse. And I can maybe work my way back into my dad's good graces. And Jesus tells a story in that moment. He had a change. He had this moment. And, And then Jesus says these words. He says, so he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. And you know the amazing thing of the story is that Jesus tells it the dad didn't berate him. The dad didn't push him aside. Uh, Obviously, he smelled bad. Obviously, he came with the dirt and filth of the pig slop on him. He had nothing left. And as he makes his way, can you just imagine him that with that long walk of shame and guilt home? And he gets close to home. He gets back to the village. And he gets close to home, and he sees his dad. And the compassion of his dad to run to him and embrace him and to kiss him. And the story goes on to say that dad threw a big party to welcome him home. That was not what he expected. So Jesus tells the story. Because that's how our heavenly father treats us. When we have that moment of repentance. when, When we say, Father, God, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. This guy owned his brokenness. He owned all of his baggage and the weight and the guilt and the shame. He owned all of it. And he said, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. And he didn't even get the whole story out at that point because the father just welcomed him home. See, that is how your heavenly father treats us when we come home even though we have all this guilt and shame and this baggage of mistakes and sins when we come to that moment where we say i have not just made some mistakes but we call him father as in heavenly father our god and we say i have sinned i have come i've fallen short of all of your standards that i have sinned and i am no longer worthy would you take me in as a hired hand See, that's the crazy part of the story. Didn't he get all that out because the father just welcomed him back? And that's the crazy part about this story for you and for me is that your heavenly father loves you so much that he will come and embrace you. He will run to you and welcome you. And the story goes on. He puts a robe on him. he puts a a ring on him signifying he's welcome. He's part of the family again. He gives him some shoes. You know, he, he just the amazing welcome home story. And Jesus communicates that because that's his heart for you and for me. I mean, he had to come to terms, though, with his life, right? Can you just imagine the young man making the long walk home and just the reality of his brokenness and sin and wondering, how is my father going to treat me? Because he rightly could have and should have discarded him because of the shame culture, maybe even had the son killed because of the shame culture. The citizens of the community of the village, you know, probably were going to judge this son. And some commentators wonder if the father running to him, which was a disgrace for a Middle Eastern man to run. Because he had to pull up his clothes, his robe there, exposing his ankles, right? had some pretty strict standards back then. And, um, and he welcomes him home. And the, fa- the father just embracing his son. Can you imagine? See, that's the story of the Bible, have you ever considered that every religious system, every faith tradition, every belief system has a way of dealing with all this? They have a way of dealing with all this. You know, if, um, if it's a, a system that is built on Christianity, uh, like maybe Catholicism, you have a way of dealing with this. I, I, I mean, no disrespect, disrespect to Catholics, but you go to your priest and you confess in a booth, right? You go and you say your sins, I'm sorry, Father, if I've sinned. You say that and you confess it and your priest gives you these ways to offer penance for your sin, whether it's prayers, things like that, right? Protestants are the same way. We just don't have a confession booth. We have a bucket of sin we carry around. And we carry that around and it could be a one-gallon bucket, a three-gallon bucket. Some of you, you're like five-gallon bucket people, right? And you carry it around and you carry it around and you fill it up and you fill it up and it gets heavy and heavy. Or maybe it's like this luggage and it gets heavier and heavier. You're like, I can't take it anymore. And you finally go to church. You finally pray, God, please forgive me. But you know what? Sometimes you do it only to empty the bucket so you know you can fill it back again. Every faith system has a way of dealing with this issue. The question is, what does Jesus say about it? And that's the beautiful thing. There's only ever been one person who says he's the answer to this. Not a hike up a mountain. Not a bunch of prayers. Not a bunch of giving. Not a list of rules to cover it. But this person came into the world and said, I alone and the answer to all of this that you carry, and I will deal with it. There's a fascinating story in the life of Jesus that's told by uh, the writers of the Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they talk about Jesus being baptized. And so there's a guy there causing all kinds of, uh, you know, a ruckus, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Uh, not, definitely not John the Methodist. You know, John the Baptizer, John the Baptist, he comes in and he creates a scene and he's, he's fiery. He's like the prophet Elijah and he, he, he looks different. You know, he probably smells different. He's a little on the crazy side, it seems, by the things. He's just out there preaching this hardcore message of repent and turn from your sins and enter into the kingdom of God and all kinds of people from everywhere come to check him out. He's down at the Jordan River, which is a pretty good trek from Jerusalem and Judea and that central area, but people from all over the country are coming down to convene in that moment to hear what this guy's doing, to see what this guy's doing, to to understand his message and his message to everybody, to Jew, like street people, to religious people, the Pharisees, to the, the soldiers, the Romans, to the tax collectors the Jews that are selling themselves out to the Romans, he says the same thing. Show your repentance by a new life. Repent. Turn, confess. Do what this young man did. Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Turn from that life of sin. Stop all this. Come and be baptized to signify that you're turning into a new life. And everybody thought, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one we've been waiting for? And they ask me, he goes, no, 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 I'm not that guy. There's no way. I can't even be a, I'm not even worthy of being the guy's servant. I mean, I can't even tie or untie his shoes, which is the lowliest of lows, right? There's not even, not even worthy of that. But there is coming a person. And so it tells us in John one twenty nine that one day John sees Jesus coming toward him. Imagine the crowd, everybody's there, thousands upon thousands of people are gathered around. If you've been on our Israel trips, you've been to that area of the Jordan River. You've stood there. Mom, you've stood there. I got a picture of you in the waters of the Jordan River right there at Bethany. On one side is Israel, and the other side is the country of Jordan. And you're in a moment where John was 2,000 years ago baptizing people. And as the crowd gathers around on both sides, and the, the river's probably full, but the crowd is full on each side. John looks up as he's in the water, baptizing people, and he sees Jesus. And he says this. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, the question is this. What in the world is this crazy guy talking about, right? What does he mean by this? Well, first of all, he says, look. He says, uh, and, and for me, I came to Jesus um, through a King James Bible. And so it's not look, it's behold. Isn't that a great word? I like that. Behold. Behold. It's like pay attention is what he's saying. He's like, wake up. This is important. This is the most important thing I'm going to say. Grab all of your focus and attention on this one thing. Look, he says, wake up. This is what's going on. Here's the one who can finally deal with all the guilt, all the shame, all the problems, all of the sin of our lives. Pay attention to this because I'm going to tell you something that is more profound than what I've already been telling you. Look, he says, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. And what you're thinking, that is really weird to 21st century American ears, right? The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Well, everybody would have gotten it because they're Jewish people at that point. Even the Romans would have understood it because they see over and over and over and over again the Jewish people, in order to cover over their sin, atone for their sin, make some kind of payment for their sin. They raise all this livestock and then they find the perfect lamb, that firstborn, and they grab it. It's without spot, without blemish. And they bring it to the priest at the temple, the one place in Jerusalem, the whole country you come to and you offer this and the priest then slits the throat. Blood is spilled out. They bleed the blood out and then they offer the animal as a sacrifice and they burn it as a symbol of what God requires which he's been requiring for like 1,500 years. It's a lot of dead lambs. It's a lot of blood for all those years. back to the law of Moses. It's a temporary measure. The lamb of God, they would have gotten it, but they wouldn't have thought it was a person, right? But when when John says, look, I, I imagine he pointed, it doesn't say that, but I imagine he pointed, look, the lamb of God, here is someone who's not just a normal guy. He looks like you. Maybe he talks like you. He has the same kind of accent. But look, this is the Lamb of God. And what is he going to do? It says, he takes away the very sin, the sin of the world. He takes away the sin of the world. Um, In the original language, uh, the implication is he lifts it up and takes it off. He lifts it up off of our shoulders and he puts it on his own shoulders. John looks to people who were gathered around the shoreline, who had all kinds of baggage, all kinds of burdens, all kinds of weight, of guilt and shame. And he had been calling them to repentance, to turn from their sin and turn to God, to enter the kingdom of God, and and they're doing it. And then in that moment, he says, look, this is the most significant thing in your lifetime. And 2,000 years later, it's still the same thing for you You're not gathered at the shore of a river. Maybe you're not wondering, you know, I did take a shower, so I don't smell, but I'm not fiery. You know, I don't eat locusts and honey. I I don't act like that. But you're wondering, you're at this moment kind of in that same place where you've gathered around to wonder what is going on? What is going to happen? What can I do possibly with all of the weight that I carry, all the sin, all of the guilt, all the shame? And John's words still ring true for you and for me. Look, wake up, pay attention, focus on this. This guy, Jesus, is the one that God sent to die in our place, to spill his blood, to die a death like an innocent lamb. And then in doing so, he will lift up the sin off of your shoulders and he will take it away. And he'll put it on his own shoulders and he will cover that. And you can be free from all of your mistakes and all of your sins. Then John baptized Jesus. And Jesus spent about three, three and a half years going around feeding people, doing miracles, teaching people, loving people, pointing people to a heavenly father. And then one night he gathered his friends his closest friends, his disciples, into a room, an upper room, and he gathered them there, and he, he had a meal with them. It was a very important meal. It was the meal called Passover, and he celebrated that meal with them, but he, they didn't realize it. He knew it was the last time. And in the Passover meal, the very elements of the meal describe this right here because back in the day of Moses, God said, hey, I'm going to deliver all the people out of Egypt You're going to be their leader. But in order to do this, I need one final miracle, one final plague. And tonight, the angel of death is going to pass over every home in Egypt. And there's only one hope. And that is if you go to your flocks and you go to your herds and you grab a perfect spotless lamb and you kill it and you spread the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of your home and you go in and you roast that meat and you eat this meal, then the death angel will pass over your home. And everybody who didn't do that had their firstborn son die. And there was wailing and there was brokenness and untold thousands of mothers held the bodies of their sons who had been killed by the angel of death. And then other mothers woke up in that morning and they embraced their sons and they embraced their family and their children and they got out of Egypt. And for 1,500 plus years, they had been celebrating this year after year after year. And now Jesus, with his guys in the upper room, says, I want you to understand something about this meal. I'm, I'm changing the understanding of this meal because I am the lamb who will lift up and take away the sins of the world. And what had been promised is now fulfilled this very night. And he celebrated Passover with him, which is why we celebrate communion, because we celebrate that bread, which represents the body of Christ. That's what he told us. It represented broken for you and for me. And then we celebrate that cup, which represents the blood of of Christ, the innocent lamb who was spilled to cover our sins, who lifted up and took away our sins. I was sitting with a friend, my wife and I went and visited a friend the other night, Dorothy James, and we we're talking about old home back in Petaluma. She was my Sunday school teacher, also the pianist and the organist and all kinds of cool stuff. And we were at our house in Salem this last week. And we we're talking about some of the songs and things like that. And, And one of the songs we used to sing, was an old hymn, and it asked a question and gave a great answer. And the question is, what can wash away my sins? You know the answer? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Remember the story of Abraham we talked about a few weeks ago? story of Abraham is God gave him a message, hey, follow me. And he left and he took off and he said, I'm going to make you famous. You're going to have a son. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Well, he finally did have that son. His own son from his wife, Sarah, Isaac, which means laughter. Because they had both laughed when God had said this. And so they named him Laughter, right? Be careful, kids, what your parents do because they might name you something, right? You know. And Isaac is born. And when he's of age, God visits Abraham and says, you know that son, the son of promise, The one you've been waiting your whole life for that I gave you. I want you to take him to a place I'm going to show you and offer him as a sacrifice. And although I know it could not have made sense, it says in the New Testament that Abraham believed that God could even raise him from the dead. And so he followed in faith and obedience and he took his son up to this mountain. And along the way, his son asked him a very important question. Dad. We've got the fire. We've got the wood. But where's the lamb? And he said, God's going to provide. In fact, that was the cry of the Old Testament is where is the lamb? You just imagine fathers telling their children, go out and find the spotless lamb. Go out. We've been raising that one. You know, go get Harold or go get Edith or whatever they called their lambs back in that day. Hebrew names, you know. Shemuel, you know, go get Yaakov, you know, go, go get that lamb. Where is it? And they bring it in. You know, the cry of the New Testament is this, behold the lamb. Behold the lamb It's Jesus. Look to Jesus. And you know what we wait for as followers of Christ is this statement. Worthy is the lamb. The Bible says one day we're going to stand before him. And we're going to worship him and we're going to say worthy is the lamb that was slain because he covered all of our our sin and our guilt and our mistakes and our shame. Friends, you don't have to forgive yourself because God has already forgiven you in Jesus, but you have to receive it. You have to welcome it. You have to have it apply to you because it doesn't automatically apply to you. And so whether you're here or online, I just want to lead you in a little. Well, thought process. And number one, it's this will you acknowledge that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain to cover over your sins? Will you acknowledge that? Will you admit that? Will you say, Yes, Jesus is the one who lifted up and took away my sin? Will you confess as this young man did? And came home, and as John told everybody to do, and Jesus told everybody to do, and all the apostles for the last 2,000 years have been telling everybody to do, repent of your sins. Which means you've got to own your sins. You've got to admit your sins. Come to terms with the fact that you've sinned and confess it to God. And will you receive him? Will you welcome him as the one who died for you? Close your eyes for just a moment. I want to offer a prayer and it's a simple prayer, a prayer that would acknowledge even your own desire to do what I've just said, which is to acknowledge Jesus as savior, to admit your own sinfulness and brokenness and confess him and call him your Lord, the one who's forgiven you. I want to offer a simple prayer. And you could pray along with me with your eyes closed. You just utter words that are similar to this, your own heart. Whether you're in this room or you're online, whether you're watching in this moment this Sunday morning or weeks or even years from now, you could, you could follow along with me by saying something like this. Father, Heavenly Father, I know that I've sinned. I know that I've broken your laws. And I know my sin has separated me from you, I'm truly sorry. And I turn from my past sinful ways and I turn to you. I repent. Please forgive me for my sins. I believe that your son, Jesus Christ, was the lamb who died for my sins. He was resurrected from the dead, is alive, and even hears this prayer and prays for me. So I invite Jesus as my Lord and my Savior to rule and reign in my heart from this day forward. I want to do your will the rest of my life. Show me how to be like Jesus in your name. Amen.